Father, we are grateful to be called the children of the living God. We're thankful that you have promised to be with us even to the end of the age. We're thankful that where two or three are gathered together, there you are in the midst as we're here in your name. We thank you that we have the word to hold in our hands, to study and to learn. And I pray that will be our purpose. We're grateful for fellowship and uh, the opportunities to share with one another. But Lord, our true purpose is to hear from you, to have communion with the true and the living God. And so we ask you to open our minds and hearts today to understand, to energize us, to facilitate our abilities to grasp truth and to apply. And Father, we ask for your blessing throughout our Sunday school this morning. In each class, may you be present to empower and to bless. And as the second service uh, is underway, we ask for your blessing there also. We thank you for your promises and for the sense that we have of your presence in this room this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Please turn to Exodus chapter 3 if you haven't already. We've looked at this chapter now, uh, first few verses for the past couple of Sundays. And what's interesting here is that we have a very profound event, which is often preached on and often a, a subject often taught upon. And what we have in, in the first verses of this chapter, of course, is the record of uh, the most profound event in Moses' life during his first 80 years. Uh, the first 40 years were probably relatively exciting for him, uh, being raised as a prince in, in the most powerful land of the world at that time. And, you know, we, uh, th I've, I've mentioned this before, one of the things that really bothers me is the uh, arrogance of modern scholars. And that is, they think they have the answer, and anybody who, from an earlier period was, you know, just plain ignorant and couldn't possibly really know the truth. Egypt was a land of, of great education and uh, learning back in the days even of Moses. The human race had moved very quickly, and I think that was partly in response to the fact that uh, when Adam and Eve were created, God created them perfect. And their capacity to know and to grow and to learn and to understand was phenomenal. I would just think about that. How long did it take after Adam was created before we read the account of him naming all the animals there in the Garden of Eden? And how would you like the task of God running these animals by and you giving them all a name according to their characteristic? Uh, it would be a, quite a task. And if you think of, uh, if, if we were to suppose that Adam was created as a tabula rasa, you know, a blank slate, and that all he could do was go duh and drag his knuckles in the ground, that would have been quite a task, but he wasn't that at all. He had the capacity to commune with the living God. And so as, as the centuries passed, you have the devolution or the decay of human capacity rather than, of course, the improvement. We're not smarter today than the ancients. We're dumber individually. Uh, collectively, of course, we have far more people to, to apply understanding together. You know, 5.6 billion people in the world today can collectively provide enough brain power to, uh, to accomplish the great technology that we have. 
but I think individually we are certainly not smarter, more intelligent than those of antiquity. So Moses lived in a, an intellectually challenging place in an intellectually challenging time. Then, of course, the reverse was true, at least in part, as he wandered around in the wilderness with nobody to talk to but God and, and the sheep. And so as he has this encounter at the burning bush, it becomes a very, very profound experience for him. Now, thinking about that, you know, sometimes we often uh, blow this up bigger than it was in terms of its visual reality. As I mentioned, I think last week, it was just an ordinary bush as far as we know, probably not even a big bush. And, and the unusual nature of it was, of course, that it was burning there in the wilderness when, as far as Moses knew, nothing should be burning, and then it wasn't being consumed. It was not a great display. When Mount St. Helens blew its top, that was a far greater display than this. On the 4th of July, we're going to throw vast amounts of uh, fireworks into the air in a, in a great pyrotechnic display, certainly more dramatic than, than this particular uh, display physically. But for Moses, it was a life-changing experience. Let's read beginning at verse 5 of Exodus 3. Then God said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place in which you're standing is holy ground. And he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. And now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. God has made it clear who he was. I am Elohim, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God of Amram and Jochebed. And he delivers a fourfold message here to Moses. First of all, and, and we looked at the first two points last week, I have seen the affliction of my people. God has seen the pain that they were suffering. Secondly, I have given heed to their cry. They have been crying out to me for decades, and I have heard their cry. And I have been in the process of bringing the answer. But the answer will come in my time, and you're part of that answer as we look a little further on. Thirdly, he said, I am aware of their sufferings. I, I think all of us would answer positively if, if we were asked the question, is, can anything escape the notice of God? And certainly not. If he knows the number of hairs on our head, and he, can, he knows when a sparrow falls from the sky... Uh, certainly he knows the need and the suffering and the distress of each and every one of his people. Is he ever too busy to be aware? You know, we, we read these cartoons and we, you know, where somebody says, well, I prayed, but I got a busy signal, you know. No, 
they're never as a busy signal. How it is that God in his omniscience can hear the voice of every single person who cries, even if they cry to him simultaneously, I don't know. I guess that's part of being omniscient and omnipotent. But God can and God does hear the cry of each and every one of his individual people. If he hadn't, or if he was not, able to do that, he couldn't be the sovereign God. And if he didn't care, he wouldn't be our Heavenly Father. So certainly he can and he cares. And it's very important that we always remember that. There are a couple of psalms which, well, there are lots of psalms really that, that uh, reinforce our understanding of God's concern. But a couple of them that I'd like to just note a passage from, Psalm 34. At the end of Psalm 34... David, of course, wrote many psalms to illustrate his need of God and that the Lord is provider and deliverer. In verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. And we know that to be true, even in our own lives and in the lives of those around us and as we watch the news. But the Lord delivers them out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and then none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. None. Uh, unfortunately, of course, I think it is that we have a tendency to think of God's deliverance only in the sense of delivering us from a physical or a mental or emotional inconvenience or distress at the moment rather than seeing it not only in that light, but beyond that in the light of ultimate redemption. Because that's God's ultimate goal, is redemption of his people eternally. And our, our tendency is to think of the stresses of our life as going on forever and ever. And of course they don't, and, and neither does our lives on this planet. In Psalm 139, in stressing the omniscience of God, we read, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou, this is verse 2. Thou dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. Thou dost understand my thought from afar. Thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down and art intimately acquainted with all my ways. Notice the words used here. Scrutinize, intimately acquainted. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, thou dost know it all. Thou hast enclosed me behind and before and laid thy hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. He has enclosed us in his love, in his power, in his grace. Uh, he has laid his hand upon us for good, intimately acquainted. If God knows our thoughts before we even think them, is there anything that can escape his knowledge concerning our lives, the lives of his people? Certainly not. So God is aware of their sufferings, even as he is aware of ours. And then finally, what is God going to do about it? You know, he's heard their cry, he's aware of their afflictions, he's aware of their sufferings. So what <coughs> is God going to do about it? Well, he goes on to tell Moses there, that I have come down to deliver them and to bring them up. I have come down to deliver and to bring them up. Here we have what is God's twofold plan. 
for Israel then and for every human life that's ever lived on this planet. God comes to deliver from and to bring to. To deliver from and to bring to. He's going to deliver them from Egypt and bring them to the promised land. In Colossians 1.13, we have a, a general statement of how that applies, really, to all of us. In Colossians 1.13, we read, For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his dear son, of his beloved son. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. God delivers us from sin, not just to deliver us from sin. He delivers us from sin to righteousness. And then beyond salvation, God's deliverance continues. God continues to deliver us from suffering, from affliction, from those things that distress our life. But he does not deliver us just to make us comfortable. And that, of course, as you know, is um, what I just said is, is heresy to certain groups of Christians who believe that God wants us to be comfortable and rich and healthy and famous and all these things because we're kings and queens and so we should kind of lord it on the earth. Uh, just isn't what scripture says. He doesn't deliver us from stress and suffering just to make us comfortable. He delivers us for the purpose of bringing us to a deeper relationship with him. That's his goal. To teach us to trust and to obey. Sufferings may in fact be continued to, may be allowed to continue because we may be resistant. Or God may be refining us for a purpose that we have not even conceived of yet. That for which we need to be more case hardened, I suppose you could say, than maybe others. Uh, Peter, of course, talks a great deal about trials and tribulations. And in 1 Peter 5.10, we have a often quoted verse where Peter says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And I think we need to remember those words there aren't enrich glorify terms of that nature in this world, but perfect us to confirm us, strengthen us, and establish us in him that we might be able to serve him better. I think there are times when some individuals misinterpret the word deeper relationship. What is a deeper relationship? And when you look around at some churches in America, a deeper relationship is having a more warm, fuzzy feeling about God. I just have this, this sense of God more than ever before. Well, we may have a sense of God more than before, and that's fine. But what God is looking for is obedience. Trust and obey. Remember the situation where Saul insisted on going ahead and making the sacrifice because Samuel was late in coming? They had to make a sacrifice before they could go out to war and and Saul saw his army beginning to go home because 
They were delaying so long to make the sacrifice and get with the battle. And so Saul finally said, I'm going to go ahead and make the sacrifice because it's important to make the sacrifice to have God with us before my army all goes home. He makes the sacrifice and Samuel shows up. And Samuel says, what have you done? <laughs> and, and Saul says, well, I just, I made the sacrifice because it was important to do this because we're going to go forth to the battle. And, and Samuel makes that profound uh, statement that to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. You know, a, a person cannot say, well, I'm going to tithe 50% of all my earnings and certainly God will look upon me with kindness and yet walk my own way and do my own thing. No, to obey is better than sacrifice. And that's what a deeper relationship with God is all about. It's about obedience. It's about trust. It's about making the Word of God real in our lives and, and doing what it says. That's what a deeper relationship with God is. It doesn't really have anything to do except to, out on the periphery with our feelings about God. There are times when we may not feel God is within 20 miles of us if we try to trust our feelings. But God is always there because he has promised to do so. I think it's clear that the Israelites are going to be delivered by the might of God himself. After all, they're held captive by the most powerful country in the world at that time, ruled by a, a pharaoh who was, in effect, a dictator over all the land because he was a God-man. You know, he was the representative of Horus, the, the sort of the uh, Messiah-like God of Egypt. And so, obviously, for Israel to be delivered it would have to be by the might of God. But you'll notice that God will use, and we will notice that, and of course you already know the story, God will use human channels. God will use Aaron, and God will use Moses. God doesn't just go down there and go zap and pull the Israelites out of the land. You go through this long process that makes up a good hunk of the first part of the book of Exodus of Moses going and speaking to Pharaoh and Pharaoh saying no and the plague coming and Moses going back. I mean, it gets a little repetitious after a while. But that was God's means of accomplishing his purpose. He could have done it many other ways. But he chose to deliver through human agencies. God can do that. But as you read through Scripture, you'll find very few instances where God delivers without a human agent. Very, very few times. His ultimate delivery of us all through Christ was through a human agent. Christ became flesh, became a human, to give to us deliverance. That's, of course, I think one reason why it's important that we be aware of the fact that we need to be willing and we need to be ready to be that channel. You never know, I never know, when there's going to be an opportunity to deliver, to bless, to help someone. And if we're not prepared, then God has to use some other means. Or maybe God delays a deliverance that he wanted to occur at a certain time. So we need to be prepared to be used of God. That's incumbent upon us. In first, Second Timothy, chapter two, verse twenty-one. Second Timothy two, verse twenty-one. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, 
sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. We're to be vessels of honor. We're to be useful for every good work. In Titus chapter 3, verse 8, this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Then down in verse 14. Let our people also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs that they may not be unfruitful. What are we to do? Engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs. That's our function here. That's God working through us to accomplish his plan and his purpose. One of God's attributes is that of deliverer. God is the deliverer. His proclamation that he had come down to deliver Israel reminds us that he has delivered you and he has delivered me, if we're true children of his. He has delivered us both spiritually and physically from the kingdom of darkness. David gave a psalm which is recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 22, which is a real psalm of deliverance, a song of deliverance concerning what God had done on his behalf. I'd like to read just a, a portion of that psalm, the first portion beginning in 2 Samuel 22, verse 1. And David spoke the words of this song to the Lord in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. Thou dost save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction overwhelmed me, the cords of shell surrounded me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. Yes, I cried to my God. And from his temple he heard my voice. And my cry for help came to his ears. Trust and faith and obedience makes this a reality. David obeyed. David believed. David trusted. David was delivered. Sometimes we wonder if deliverance is ever going to come in our situation. Because it seems like, wow, I've been going through this for a very long time. Well, there are two possible reasons for that. One is that maybe we aren't really trusting God and seeking Him. The other is, as in the case of Israel here, they, God heard their cry, God was sending the answer, but it was in His time that the answer would come and the people would be delivered. The Israelites were to be delivered from the power of the Egyptians and from the land of spiritual darkness in which they lived, in which the God of Israel, the true God, was not even known. It was a land of spiritual darkness. 
You go to Egypt, as I've mentioned before, it's basically a cloudless country, so the sun shines brightly all the time. But it's a land of darkness, historically, and even in the present day, for the most part, because God is not known there. God's promise here to Moses is that he is going to remove the physical shackles and by implication also the spiritual shackles from off their hearts. And he's going to deliver the people of Israel, uh, free them, so that they might live in the light and glory of his presence. And, and that contact has always got to be maintained. As I said before, when God delivers from, he delivers to. He delivers from bondage to freedom, the promised land. That was probably a, almost a fading memory in the hearts of most, Egypt, uh, most Israelites. Of course, all of those who lived at the time of Moses, none of them had ever seen the Promised Land as far as we know. That is, unless Pharaoh had some reason sent them over there for some reason, and we have no, nothing to support that idea. So they had never seen the Promised Land. It was just a, a kind of a memory that had come down uh, through the generation that God had promised them the land of Canaan. They had not yet seen it, but that was the land that belonged to them. It had been promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, who, of course, were nothing but memories to the Israelites of Moses' day. But what they couldn't quite grasp, I'm sure, was the fact that they would possess it in a way in which Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never possessed the land. When Joshua and Caleb and those that were with him would enter the land, they would actually physically take possession of the entire land. Lock, stock, and barrel. Kind of a turnkey country. Everything in place. Just move in. Cities are here. The orchards are here. The vineyards are here. The, the fields are over there. The pasture lands are here. The, the aqueducts are already in. The, you know, everything's in place. You just walk in and take over. Ultimately, what happened. It's interesting because in this passage in, uh, in Exodus 3, God describes the land as good. Now for you and for me, if you've ever been to Israel, one of the things that as you wander over the barren rocky slopes, you probably wouldn't say is this is a good land. Because <laughs> it doesn't really look all that good. I, I have an a interesting book that I bought once. It's um, Israel from the Air. That's not exactly the title, but it's the entire book's made up of color aerial photographs that were made of the entire land from one end to the other. And many of those pictures you just see hill after hill after barren hill with nothing but rocks all over the hill. Think this is a good land? It's interesting because the, the Hebrew word here for good means pleasant. It means bountiful. Okay. Whatever you say, Lord. And spacious. Spacious. A broad land is what the Hebrew may, means. And, you know, I, when I think of spacious, I think of, uh, oh, beautiful for spacious skies, you know, purple mountains and majesty and the great plains. I mean, you could put Israel into the great plains so many times, you get tired of counting after a while. There's only about two or three states in the Union that are smaller than Israel. It's a very, very tiny country. Spacious. Flowing with milk and honey. Of course, we, we kind of 
often translate that literally and says milk flowing across the landscape and gooey honey or something, you know. Yeah. Which, which, of course, is not what it means. It's poetic. It's a poetic statement referring to the fact that the land was going to be adequate for the people and bountiful for their needs. It was a good land, really. Because the land of Israel at that time, which was 3,500 years ago, is not the same land that it is today. Oh, it's located in the same, you know, at the same coordinates, same end of the Mediterranean, but it's a different land. I mean, that land has suffered from the depredations of centuries of neglect. After the Arabs took over the land uh, with, with, in the Islamic invasion, which occurred back in the seventh century, most of the Jews were thrown out of the land. Many, of course, had already been driven out long before by the Romans. And, and then, especially when the Turks came to power, and, and the Turks controlled the land for several hundred years up until the 20th century, it was given to total neglect. There was no program for improving the land. It was just allowed to go to pot, if you will. And it's very, very slow in recovering. It's been stripped of its forest. At one time, th there were forests over most of those hills there in the Holy Land. They're trying to re refurbish it today and, and you know, plant a tree. You can give 10 bucks and they'll plant a tree in your name over there if you want. They're, they're trying to refurbish the land, but it's, it's a long, hard process to do that. It suffered from so much neglect over the centuries. But the Israelites were going to be given a land where there were orchards, and vineyards, croplands, and pasture lands that would pour forth their bounty for them as they moved into the land. And as we're going to see when we get to that point, as soon as Israel crossed the, Red, uh, the, the, the Jordan River, the manna stopped. The manna that God had been supplying them for all those many years stopped the minute they crossed the Jordan because they were in the land that was theirs and they were to live off the land because it was their land. The problem is, though, at this point in time, it was just a minor problem. The land was already occupied. There were all these ites living there, Perizzites and Hittites and Jebusites and all the other ites <laughs> were, were living in the land. Now, to us, that would be a big problem. To God, no problem at all. He was going to take care of it. He would use human agents to do that, too. And that's wherein some people have a problem with the Old Testament. How could a God of love order his people to exterminate other people? In the uh, eighth verse of this uh, third chapter of Exodus, we have a, a good analogy for the deliverance that God brings to all that believe in him. And, and you've heard this certainly in many sermons. Egypt is analogous to the kingdom of darkness, and the promised land is analogous to the kingdom of light. Egypt is the kingdom of unbelievers. The promised land is the kingdom of the believer. That's the analogy we can draw from this. And God delivers you and me from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Now, for some, that's very dramatic. For others, it may not be so dramatic. If you became a Christian when you were very young and you weren't terribly aware of, of your sinfulness, why, it might not seem like it was such a big step, just kind of like growing into righteousness rather than having a profound change from light to darkness. 
But for people who come to know the Lord midway through life, it can be a very radical and dramatic transformation. And in uh, the church we were in before, we had a, a man like that. He, was, he didn't come to know the Lord until he was in his late 40s. And he had really been into the world in a heavy way. And he was so radically changed that it was really like light, like darkness and light to him. And anything that even had a glimmer of the darkness from before, he wanted nothing to do with it. And he really loathed that when the church seemed to take some of those things and, and, and try to monkey with it, for example. He, for, he was heavy into rock music, for example. And, and when he came out of that, he couldn't understand how the church could have anything to do with rock in any way, shape, or form. Call it Christian or whatever you call it. Because he had brought, come out of darkness into light and... Uh, to him, he couldn't see how the two could coexist. It's interesting that God miraculously has brought us, if we're true believers, out of darkness into light. But generally speaking, in most instances, he probably used a human agent, didn't he? For me, it was, it was a preacher. I was at a youth rally. And, and the words of that preacher got through to my heart, and God drew me uh, to himself. And, and for others, it, it might be some, some other human agent. Billy Graham has been used by God to, to draw many in, into his kingdom. The work is God's, but the agency that he uses to deliver the message often is human. And so would be the instrument that he would use to deliver Israel. You and I can, to, to, to further this analogy a little bit, understand that we have been instantly delivered from the kingdom of darkness. As soon as we believe, we're instantly delivered into the kingdom of light. But we've got a few years to tread around in the physical body down here in Egypt. And in our progress from Egypt to the promised land, we have, as the Israelites will have, many battles to fight, many campaigns to wage, many struggles along the way. There will be giants in the land, it will seem sometimes, that have to be faced. But you and I overcome by the same means that Israel overcame. Now, we, we have to, as we look at this, realize that Israel wasn't perfect out there in the wilderness. They griped and they complained. We have to eat this old manna again. God, we want some meat. And so he gives them a horde of partridges until they're sick to death of it. You know, God deals with us in, in all of those things. But in the overall picture, Moses and those who followed him are described as obedient, as going forth in faith. You know, we can nitpick the little things along the way and say, well, what, you know, Moses hit the rock when he was supposed to speak to it. And, and yes, he did. And as a result, he didn't go into the promised land. But Moses is still described in Scripture as a man of faith, as a giant of faith, as a prophet of God. And so we have to look at it in the big picture as, as God does. As we faithfully go along the way, we may lose a little battle here and there because of unfaithfulness. But in the overall campaign, the victory is ours because God has won the victory and he is winning it through us. And we will overcome the enemy by the same means that Israel did. Can you imagine this? Uh, you know, if Moses had thought about this plainly, if Moses had been a pragmatic man, if he hadn't had all these encounters with God, you think, 
I have got to lead a bunch of slaves who've never known anything but making bricks all their lives through the wilderness, and I've got to fight military powers and armies with this motley group of slaves, we're in big trouble because you can't just throw bricks at them. No. You've got to have a way to fight a campaign. You, you need, I mean, many of the peoples they would face were warlike people. People who part of their lifestyle was making war. And they'd learned how to make war from the time they were children. It's part of their nature, part of their blood, their, their culture. The Israelites were not a warlike people. And when the two clash, usually the warlike people overcomes the other. That's why you have so many instances in history where uh, a civilized society is overcome by a kind of a barbarian society that sweeps in out of the plains or down out of the mountains. Think about the Mongols if you ever have a chance. How in the 13th century, the Mongols, who were very few in number, I mean, even today, Mongolia only has two million people living in it. Back then, there was probably not more than a million people living in it or less. And yet, Mongolia swept over all of Asia, you know, from Korea to Russia, and built the largest empire the world had ever known up to that time, with just a few hundred thousand warriors. How could they do that? Because the peoples they overwhelmed were not as warlike as they. Many of them were very sedentary farming people who didn't have uh, a, a way, a means of resisting. And so they were overwhelmed. So what is Israel going to do? Well, m the first lesson is learned when they stand at the Red Sea and try to figure out how to get across with the army of Egypt on their tail. And, and God, through Moses, says, be still and, see, and, and, and be still and know that I am God. See what God will do. So Israel is delivered by God's strength. David, as he stood before Goliath, cried out to Goliath, the battle is the Lord's. Goliath wasn't impressed. <laughs> Goliath said, I'm going to feed you to the birds, little boy. Or, yeah, as I mentioned before, you get the right picture, he was no little boy. David was a full-grown man, but he was not a warrior. He wasn't out there in armor and sword. He was out there with a slingshot. Goliath probably knew what that was, but wasn't afraid of it. The battle is the Lord's. In 2 Thessalonians 3, we read, The Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Now, David didn't have that passage to read, but David knew that truth. How many of us, we, we've stood at the site where David slew Goliath, or you know, the, the general area anyway, and we've looked at the little wadi there where he picked up the five smooth stones. And If you try to picture it yourself, would you run down there and pick up five smooth stones and run towards this hulk, you know, this gigantic guy who stood nine or ten feet tall, covered with armor, with a big sword and a big black beard and a deep voice that sounded like thunder, who, who said, come here, little boy, I'll feed you to the birds. Did you go running forth with, with great anticipation? I've won this victory. <laughs> Our natural tendency is, you know, the, uh, what they say, adrenaline is, adrenaline is for fight or flight. <laughs> I think most of us would be into flight right about then, as in rather than fight. 
But, but God was with David. And, and David with a confidence that was not his. Even though if you look at Michelangelo's statue of David, you think, <laughs> oh man, that has got to be one of the most fantastic uh, carving of a visage I've ever seen. I mean, you can just see David's mind as you look in at Michelangelo's. Of course, David would have looked down at Goliath if he really was as big as that statue. He's 14 foot tall in the statue. <laughs> but, you know, in his own natural person, he couldn't have had the strength to do it, no matter if he'd have killed a bear or a lion before. It wasn't the same because Satan was empowering Goliath. And Satan is a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so David could only go forth in the strength of the Lord because in the Lord is victory. And the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you and me and David and Israel from the evil one. In verse 9 of Exodus 3, we have a very similar passage to verse 7. And you've certainly noticed that as you read through Scripture, how often God seems to repeat himself. He does that, of course, as you've heard on many instances, for a very specific reason. We are slow to learn. <laughs> and we need to be told over and over again, and then again on top of that. And so God obliges. But there's a little bit uh, different wording in, in verse 9. In verse 7, he uses the word affliction, which emphasizes the pain of distress and can be also translated as poverty. In verse 9, he uses the word oppression. Now, the Hebrew word here emphasizes tribulation. It's a word that means to squeeze. It's the same word that was used when Balaam's donkey was jamming Balaam's foot up against the wall, squashing it there because Balaam didn't see the angel there that he was trying to drive his donkey beyond and his foot was being crushed against the wall same word my my people are being crushed by the egyptians so the word affliction the word oppression when they're put together underscore the extremity of the situation it's not that they're just down there and they're having to labor for somebody else and and things are tough it's because they're being crushed physically mentally spiritually, emotionally, in every way they're just being crushed into the ground. And God is about to deliver them. Now Moses was awed by this encounter with God, certainly. But not so much that he didn't hear God's words. And he acknowledged in his heart that, yes, what you're saying about Israel is true. I remember they, they were crying out, they were afflicted, they were oppressed. And of course, you may have noticed, I did try <laughs> to deliver them a little bit there and that, that didn't work out so well. I think there arose in Moses' heart a joy and a hope that God was going to do something about this. God was going to intervene and deliver his people. Moses had been frustrated by his own ill-conceived attempt 40 years before. It was just a natural reaction to kill the Egyptian. And when the whole thing blew up in his face, he was very distressed. And I think in 40 years in the wilderness, herding sheep, virtually every thought of delivering Israel was out of his mind. There was nothing he could do. Oh, he could pray to God maybe. But beyond that, what could he personally do to deliver Israel? All those ideas had long been purged from his mind. 
And so verse 10 has got to be like a bolt out of the blue. Up to this point, standing there before God with the sandals off uh, of his feet on holy ground and hearing God's word to him was awesome. But this blew him away. And I don't think he could believe what he heard. God said, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people out. You, Moses. <laughs> the last place Moses ever wanted to go to again, again was Egypt. And the last person he ever wanted to see again was Pharaoh. Even though it was not the same Pharaoh probably anymore. He didn't want to go there. He wouldn't have anything to do with it. I think Moses was horrified. I could go with everything you're saying, Lord, until this moment. You've got to be mistaken. As we read on through the passage, we know Moses, in effect, tells God that. You've got to mean somebody else, Lord, because I da, 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 don't speak so well, you know, or whatever. <coughs> God never makes mistakes. And God never appears to somebody just to give them a thrill. God's not into thrilling people for the sake of thrilling people. His purpose then and now is to establish faith and to elicit obedience. Establish faith and elicit obedience. And that's what he wanted from Moses. But it's going to take a little bit of conversation here before Moses will agree. And then he will only do so reluctantly. We've all heard of those who kind of jump into a ministry saying, hey, man, this is what I can do, and I'm going to do a great job of it. I just can't wait. They have no idea what they're jumping into. Moses had a good idea of the problem that stood before him. Moses had been in Egypt for 40 years. He knew what it was like. And so he was really reluctant to do what God commanded him to do, not because he didn't believe God, but because he knew the difficulty of the problem. And I think most of us, if we're honest with ourselves and really perceive the problem, aren't going to just jump into something that God has called us to do uh, with a devil-may-care attitude. Hopefully we will do it, but with a real sense of responsibility and a real sense that the battle is the Lord's. And if we get in the way, we're going to make a mess out of it. And that can be seen to happen so many times in the church in America where the church has been made a mess because the effort was made in the flesh and not in God's strength. The battle wasn't the Lord's, it was man's in the flesh. And the church has been destroyed and the ministry has been destroyed. Its purpose is to establish faith and to elicit obedience. Well, let me just read the next two verses and then we'll pick up with those next week. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. And God said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you, that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. It's quite a promise, and we'll look at next week how significant that was.